Golden Spiral Media presents Dark Matter, a fan podcast dedicated to Extant on CBS. Each week, Mike and Dave explore the mysteries, characters, and drama that unfold on Extant, and they want to hear from you, too. Send in your thoughts by calling 304-837-2278 or visiting goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. Now, here are your hosts, Mike and Dave. Hello, we're glad you could join us for this installment of Dark Matter, an extant podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number two, where we'll be talking about season one, episode two of the CBS summer event series, Extant, entitled Extinct. And this episode aired on July 16th, 2014. And this one was written by the creator of Taken, one of my favorite miniseries ever, another Steven Spielberg production. The writer's name is Leslie Bohem. Really excited to see him on board. And directed by Matt Earl Beasley. And as we go into our show news here, Dave, I just want to add a couple of names to the Twitter accounts that everyone should be following if they are into that sort of thing with their TV show. Femi Dodd, remember her, the redhead? Oh, yeah. (laughs) She's on Twitter. Her name is Annie Wershing, and if you just uh, do the at symbol and then her last name, Wershing, That's her on Twitter. And then also I found out that the visual effects supervisor is on Twitter as well. His name is Stefan Fleet and the showrunner Greg Walker put us onto that. So we'll put this in the show notes. We'll put some people that you can follow uh, on Twitter into our show notes so that you can add those to your list if you like. All right. But interestingly, Dave, I thought they were finished filming season one. They're actually just finishing it up this weekend. Probably tomorrow is, is what I get the indication. Well, that's not that unusual. I mean, we you know we just aired episode two, and you're talking about episodes 11, 12, 13, presumably. Yeah, so it's something where I'm hoping what will happen is that we'll see more Twitter participation on the part of the cast, or, or maybe uh, at least some news about what's going on with, with them in general. So uh, it's just always interesting to see how the dynamic changes online once that happens. So... One thing I didn't realize, Dave, and I don't remember exactly who pointed this out. It probably was through social media. Did you know that Grace Gummer, who plays Julie, is Meryl Streep's daughter? (laughs) I I didn't, and I feel bad for some of the thoughts I had about her uh, as we were watching the first two episodes. Uh, I'm really liking her character. I really like her. And, and, you know, I do have a theory. I mean, as as more and more big-time actors are coming to television either for, you know, long runs or perhaps just a one-off here and there. Might we perhaps see Meryl Streep in season two? (laughs) That would be fun. Well, actually, a couple of Meryl Streep's daughters are in the biz. Uh, Mamie Gummer is one one you'll see every now and then as well. But but yeah, that was interesting. And once you know that, you can totally see it. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when you see her in profile. That's right. (laughs) Now, the ratings have been pretty good. The natural tendency is to compare it to Under the Dome, and it hasn't put up those kind of numbers. And, you know, again, even though we've got Steven Spielberg's name attached to this, I don't want to say it, but it it may be true it's not Stephen King's name. 
Yeah. Well, I think it more than Steven Spielberg, Halle Berry is having to carry the show. Absolutely. And and she's doing a fine job. Obviously, we'll talk about that later. But uh, just under eight million for episode two. 1.5 in the all important 18 to 49 demographic, uh, you know, an 18% decline, but you know, I think it's doing fine. Uh, 6,000 tweets during the episode. Yeah. That was actually showed up in some of the news. And I'll tell you, as, as someone who's used to continuum live tweets where you can actually read the tweets going by, I mean, geez, the people using hashtag extant, you literally could not keep up. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing. Right. Now, you are much more the social media guy than I am. So I'm assuming 6,000 is a lot. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and that's just during the actual airing, not before and after. But yeah, I think the ratings are good. I think the main thing to remember is that it's number one for the week. Uh, this is a summer uh, series and Typically, people going on vacation, things like that, do bring the ratings down in general, which is why summer has has typically been a wasteland. But uh, now you can pull down uh, respectable numbers. And I think definitely Extant has been number one, so you can't argue with that. Right. And I think a lot of the genre shows are figuring that out, whether it's Falling Skies, Defiance, and, and yeah. obviously now Extant. All right. Well, Dave, it's time to get into our Dark Matters episode discussion. And this episode, of course, was called Extinct. All right. And we've kind of been waiting for this and, you know, I guess are waiting two episodes. But, you know, with the credits the, or, or the uh, opening logo, the way it goes from extant to extinct. Opening scene, we see Molly in bed. And I, I don't know about you, but when I started hearing that thumping, the first thing I thought was a heartbeat. Yeah, right. I think uh, it already sounded like the sonogram that we were expecting to see in this episode, unfortunately, because of the spoilerific previews. But Right. And I think we were both probably ready for this to be a dream, which it, of course, was not. Yeah. She goes downstairs and, you know, she sees the tennis shoes going around in the dryer. And I think she attributes the sound she heard to that. But I don't think so. And, and obviously later we see her hearing it again. And the tennis shoes are not revolving in the dryer. Yeah, initially I thought it sounded nothing like sneakers tossing in the dryer. When I rewatched it, it sounded a little bit more like it. But yeah, you wouldn't. I don't think you would be deceived that way. Yeah. But it was a nice little suspenseful opening to the show. Right. Now, one of the things that is so compelling about this show so far is that you don't have any idea of motivations of each individual character. So we see Sam... What's her last name? I, I put in my Barton. notes Barton, right? <laughs> Dr. Barton. Uh, and, and she's approached by Director Sparks about Molly's results. And, you know, while he is trying to come off low key, you know, when am I going to get him? She clearly puts him off. You'll get him. You know, I should have him in tonight, tomorrow at the latest. When I have him, you have him. But I'm not sure which one I trust least. I, I mean, I don't trust her either. Yeah, Director Sparks and Sam Barton both have seemingly best interests at heart. They seem like nice people, but they don't necessarily seem trustworthy. Did you see what she was looking at when she encountered Director Sparks? Uh, oh, the brain scans. Yeah, it was the brain scans. So she actually, you can see her, I don't know, like hide the screen or something when he shows up. So. Right, yeah. So I think, I think personally that rather than being deceptive, 
themselves, I think they're just being deceptive towards each other, but not necessarily against Molly. Well, see, and nobody trusts anybody. Yeah. So Harmon, I guess, is right. And and certainly uh, they're, even though they haven't necessarily spoken to him, they're they're taking him at his word. All right. Well, anyway, so one of the first things we see, though, is she gets that pain in her stomach. And, and look, you can't help but consider that it's something to do with the baby. And she looks up and sees Marcus in her home. Yeah, that was not expected because you thought maybe it was a experience that would only happen to her in space, but no. Right. And then he can only apparently repeat what she said, because again, now he's just repeating the it's okay. Right. And I think what you'll notice with Marcus and also later on with Harmon's experience that we relate, the words that they happen to pick are actually quite packed with meaning, even though they don't have a large vocabulary. And in this case, is he trying to communicate to her that everything is okay despite the pain that she's feeling and that uh, everything will be okay in the end as well for her? Yeah, yeah, could be. What's the deal with the six circular objects that apparently come to the surface at times, but certainly weren't there when Sam did her uh, sonogram? Right. You think maybe there's some kind of foreign object in there, but it is a human baby. So yeah, I'm not sure what to make of the I guess it's kind of like a three larger circles in a trefoil shape and then three smaller circles around the the overlapping edges of them. Yeah. So, well, obviously part of, you know, the the Molly storyline is the birthday trip seemed to have a lot of parties in this uh, show. (laughs) So they're going to the Natural History Museum, which I found kind of ironic since Ethan's not natural. Is he? <laughs> that's right. And plus, what kid chooses to go to the museum? And that's what I thought at first, but then this is a pretty cool museum. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, personally, I, I always loved going to the museums. And, and obviously, where we live, we have access to the National uh, Museums and the Natural History Museum. But uh, now, the deal with the 3D elephant. Uh-huh. So why are all the kids terrified? Is it just, I mean, is it like terrified like you would be at a, at a movie, at maybe a 3D movie when the... Yeah, well, it's a visceral reaction. Even though they intellectually know it's not real, you still would react that way if the visual came at you, but not so for Ethan. Yeah, so how come? Just the way he's wired? Yeah, no, yeah. No pun intended. Well, because uh, <laughs> he doesn't have the evolutionary flight or fight response, right? Okay. So he's going to be standing there more curious than anything. And because he knows that it's not real, he's not going to be fooled or his nervous system isn't going to be fooled the way a a biological human would, right? Uh, Okay. Okay, good. Now, um, speaking of biological humans, I mean, one of the issues that comes up is the relationship that she has with Ethan and that John has with Ethan and that, you know, that they have as a family. And, you know, we see and get the impression early on that maybe she's not completely buying into him as her son. Yet in this episode, we see several instances at the museum where she is ever the proud mama. Yeah. And talking with some of the other parents in the same way you would about a human child. And, and Dave, do you get the impression we do somewhat get an answer to the idea that the other mothers know about Ethan? I don't think we get an answer. I mean, at first, I it's thought, a hint. Well, at, at, you mean the, the other mother asking about him getting into school? 
yeah, how did John swing that? Well, see, and, and my first reaction was that that's what she was referring to. But then on the other hand, I mean, these are all people that are in the upper socioeconomic strata, I, I think it's safe to say. And we know that there's a highly competitive nature among all these parents for where their kids going to school. And, and I just assumed it was maybe something like that. Yeah, maybe it's just supposed to be ambiguous to make us think that right and continue to wonder if they know right and i think a partial answer also comes later when they're at the lab and you know the one lab worker shows him his new arm Uh (laughs) and and so then we get the idea that okay so they must continually make him new bodies but you wonder they can't make them fast enough that the neighbors won't notice (laughs) so i i don't think we have an answer we've certainly got more hints though yeah, so I, I thought that it was leaning towards she knows, but the their reaction is much too blithe for my tastes, yeah. if that's the case. Yeah. Now, I guess this made some expedient storytelling that Sam shows up at the museum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> How we, convenient. Yeah, we can kill two birds with one stone. But one of the things I really like is that the pace of this show is very quick. And, yeah, you know, that, that she reveals about Harmon to her and, you know, tells her she doesn't trust Sparks. And on the one hand, I was a little surprised that Sam took the news that Harmon was alive as calmly as she did. Oh, that's true. So are you suspicious of that calm reaction? I'm very suspicious of it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Now she tells her that, oh, by the way, I compared your brain scan to his and they're apparently exhibiting the same abnormalities and she attributes it perhaps to a neurovirus, but I think that's basically conjecture on her part. I don't think she really knows. No. And it's kind of one of those techno babble type of explanations anyway for us. And I want to know why did she think to do that in the first place? Yeah. I mean, all she knows is that uh, Molly is pregnant. Why would she think to compare the brain scans? Right now we don't have any kind of context for how many missions ISEA is actually running, you know, so that, you know, obviously we know Marcus was part of a mission. We don't know at what point he died. We assume he died as part of the mission, but we don't know that for sure. No, we don't. Uh, I I almost get the impression it was longer ago. And if it was tied to this, then it would seem like that would go back a lot farther than, than Harmon. Right. But regardless, it seems as if Harmon is the only one that's exhibited these abnormalities. Abnormalities. (laughs) Sorry. So, all right. So they're at the museum. Ethan goes missing. And, you know, this is the second time he's gone missing, though, in this situation. I think it's a little bit different. But but again, he understands he's not supposed to do that, which let's go back to what Femi Dodd's main concern is, that what are your plans for when these machines don't do what they're supposed to do. Right. And if Ethan is implying that John has warned him about this before, about wandering off, that that must happen a lot. Maybe it happened a lot during the 13 months that Molly was in space. Exactly. I mean, it's a small thing, but any small thing could become a big concern. Right. But in this case, where he wanders off to is just monumental. (laughs) Yeah in the storytelling and he is at the little display about the evolution of man and 
suggestion that Ethan is the next step in man's evolution, I think, is a reasonable assumption. But the robot explains about the evolution of man, Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest. And then I thought it was interesting when Ethan asks about Homo sapiens, it tells him that, well, you know, it's like you. And he goes, no, I'm not. And the robot says, oh, I'm sorry for my mistake. (laughs) Right. What species are you? But it does put that idea into his head about survival of the fittest and the weak dying off. And of course, we see the scene when when he finds his mom and asks her if she's weak. Right. He takes, I don't know if you can say he takes everything literally that the robot says, but he certainly has internalized that information in kind of an emotional reaction kind of way and not necessarily getting it correct. But at the same time, it it tells you how he thinks, how the uh, robot programming, the emotional programming is coming into play. And I am glad also that we got to see a service robot as a basis of comparison as well. Right, right. And there are a lot of uh, allusions to other sci-fi stories. And and ordinarily, I might say it's kind of cheesy, but I, I really like how they're doing it. And maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm reading these things in and, and uh, you know, the whole idea of the robot invasion, if you will, the Skynet, the machines taking over, you know, is evident. And I think that that's what we're supposed to think here. Now, he's also learned a lie. Yes. And there's a couple of things that when you're trying to deal with emotional programming, you got to take the bad with the good. And yeah, lying is one of those things. Deception, obviously that can have negative consequences. I think it's interesting specifically that when Molly is talking about secrets and how some secrets are okay, he seems to take it in stride. And particularly I I noticed that he pinky shakes on it, does a little elaborate handshake, which is exactly what he did when he first ran into Julie in episode one. And I'm kind of putting two and two together here, Dave. If he is reacting that way to having a secret, does that imply that he has a secret with Julie? Well, I certainly think they want us to think that. And and obviously there is a, you know, a certain amount of uneasiness between Julie yeah. and and Molly. And I think at first blush, you, you think that perhaps it has to do with the fact that Julie has been a surrogate mother figure for the uh, 14 months that she's been in, or is it 13 13, months? She's yeah. been, 13 that she's been in space. But is it also perhaps something to do with John? Uh, I don't think so, but I think they want us to think that that's a possibility. I just don't understand why, other than the fact that he would be alarmed about the pregnancy, it's like you need to bring him in on that. He, she, Her rationalization is sometimes people keep secrets so that other people don't worry about things that they don't need to worry about. But that's a little naive from my point of view. Well, I agree. And I, I think if her husband was a plumber, was an electrician, was a <laughs> teacher, was, you know, uh, again, nothing against any of those professions, but the fact that her husband is what he is See, I think she's afraid to tell him she's pregnant because it doesn't make any sense. And if there's somebody that could perhaps comprehend things that don't make sense on the surface, it would be him. Right. But she obviously gets caught big time in this episode uh, uh, later on. And it's one of those things where if you 
got caught to that degree, wouldn't you just kind of say, okay, fine, I'll tell you about it. But I think, I think we will actually get her telling him sooner rather than later, uh, even though it wasn't in this episode. All right. Well, we definitely know the conspiracy is in play. I guess that's her desk that, that she goes to at ISEA uh-huh. and tries to access the footage from Harmon's mission and the footage she initially wants, she doesn't have clearance for. She thinks, okay, well, I was doing the experiment when it happened. I'll do the same for him. And she gets the footage she wants. And she, I don't think any of us really understood what it was he was doing. Yeah, stacking crates. <laughs> yes. Well, we had seen the first part of his vision by that point. Right. But then, you know, certainly we, we get the idea as the episode goes along that he's trying to form a barricade. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure why he thinks that barricade's going to keep, <laughs> but but it does. Well, you know? it's weird. But it's kind of a strange uh, juxtaposition because obviously the barrier did not work and his mother just kind of popped from one place to the other. But on the other hand, the airlock solution worked. So there's is there substance to this thing? Is there not substance to this vision? We're not exactly sure how, how it comes into play. Well, but I mean, why didn't the vision, when, once it was in the airlock, and it keeps saying no, now, is it saying no, like, don't hit the airlock button and flush me out? Well, that's or? what I'm saying. It's like, you don't even get that many words from Harmon for, for his mother to echo. All you got was mother and no. And so the word actually does take on extra meaning. And, and I do think the no, no, no was trying to tell him not to do it. All right. But then why didn't she just beam herself into where he was like she did before. Well, that's the thing. I think she could make the vision move because if she's in substantial enough, part of a solar flare, let's say, just for sake of argument, some kind of energy, then it goes from one place inside the space station to another very easily. But it can't, with a vacuum being sucked out, the energy, insubstantial ghost spirit type material, whatever it might be made of, can get sucked out. That's my rationalization, my explanation for it. Okay, well, either way, she knows something's up. She goes to the bathroom, and we're not sure why to begin with, but she removes her tether. And I like the little computer voice, uh, you, your medical you know, can no longer be monitored. Yeah, right, as if that's the only thing you're monitoring. <laughs> yeah, well, at least it would give location, I would think, right? Right. And so she's certainly smart enough to do that. Now, if we were doing nitpicks, she she exits the building in a hurry and Harmon just happens to be pulling up in his car. Yeah. <laughs> in his car and has the door you know, as if he knew she was coming out. So, well, he followed her, I guess, from the museum, because remember, he actually was watching from the second floor when Molly and Ethan had their discussion about secrets. Right. Right. Well, that's true. <laughs> but uh, but then we see sparks and kern together and and the whole idea you know they know she's left the building kern wants to know whether he should you know bring her in and he says sparks that is now let's give her a little more rope to Mm -hmm. hang herself (laughs) perhaps well he doesn't exactly use the word rope but (laughs) no i I think he does does he i thought it was room a little more room oh maybe i'm wrong but uh although my wife always likes to watch with closed captioning on so well, the main uh, thing that that scene makes me wonder is how much Deputy Kern knows. Right. Because he's pretty new. So uh, I'm actually more prone to trust Sparks just because of his kind nature. 
than I am Kern, who's kind of the new guy on the block and, and hasn't really shown himself to be working in Molly's interests as a friend. Okay. So then you believe him when they hold their conversation in his driveway. I kind of do. Uh, I mean, I'm holding some of it in reserve, but don't you get the sense? It's very strange that Sparks and Yasumoto seem to be very nice people. It's almost as though they're keeping secrets, certainly, but not in an evil take over the world kind of way. Well, true. And, And I think the thing with Sparks, especially in that conversation in his driveway, when he tells her that, no, I didn't do it, I do believe him. Because I do believe, and I think this was my prediction last week, that he doesn't really understand what's going on. Yeah. He knows something is going on, and that, that apparently, you know, we learn later in the conversation with Yasumoto that, that apparently they did something to precipitate whatever it is that's going on, but he himself and, and people that are working for him at his bidding, no, they didn't do it. Yeah, so they're probably taking a defensive posture, trying to figure out how to combat whatever's coming, or at least work with it. They throw a lot of they's around. They're coming, you know, I'm not sure what what they're doing here, but whether or not it's something that they, like you said, brought upon themselves, or whether they're just trying to do damage control is the question. Well, I think the most enigmatic dialogue of the whole episode occurs in that scene with Sparks and Yasumoto when they when they say just you know like uh, what you just mentioned. I think they're already here. Yeah. Well, yeah. what's interesting, Sparks thinks we found them. Then that's an interesting term, found. Yeah. Why would you find them by virtue of what Molly went through in space? Right. But uh, if he thinks they're already here. Does he imply that Molly brought something back with her? Which I guess we kind of know. We see more than any of the other characters get to see. Right. Now, did she she bring something back that Krieger didn't? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Because if Yasumoto thinks they're already here, was, it, was is he referring to Molly bringing something back or even before that? Right. And then Sparks, if they are here, we're way out of our depth. Yeah, no plan for this. What have we done, he says. Right, and, and those four words, what have we done, Yeah, I think are crucial. I, again, I don't know why yet, but but they've done something that clearly has gotten completely out of hand and that, that they are now at the mercy of whoever they are. And of course, the big revelation with that is that it all started with some sort of sacrifice made by Alan Sparks' daughter, Katie. Yeah, you know, I'm starting to think that maybe she was offered up ah. as as some sort of sacrifice that I'm going to give you my daughter in return for we don't know. Leaving us alone? Not, well, not it, making the human race extinct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it certainly could be something like that. But, but I think it's something rather than... Uh, she sacrificed herself or or you know, anything like that. I think it, it was literally she was given. Okay, well, I want you to keep an eye on something for me out there in the audience, and Dave, you and I can keep an eye on it. The mummy in the foreground in that scene. I'm thinking it's significant, but I have no theories. But I'm just mentioning it so we can come back to it at some point in the future. <laughs> okay, all right, absolutely. Um, now, he, Yasumoto, that is, puts his finger in uh, you know, the little medical device, and, and it tells him he's got 102 days to live. So obviously the golden coffin and the goop was some kind of 
right. longevity measure. Well, we would think. But perhaps even more startling was when Femi Dodd walks into the room <laughs> yeah. wearing a satin bathrobe and asks, are you coming down soon? Yeah, so, that was unexpected. <laughs> yeah, especially since they seem to be at odds in the workplace. But for all we know, that could be a cover. Oh, yeah, the the fact that she's protesting against what Yasumoto's up to. But the thing is, like we mentioned last week, really Yasumoto is only involved with Humanix to get close to Molly. So Femi Dodd's skepticism about Humanix and why Yasumoto got involved there, if that's a cover... That's pretty wily. That's a good, nice little uh, chess move there because it's kind of a diversionary tactic in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, one of the last things that, that really come up in the, the Molly storyline is when they're at home and she missed the lunch she was supposed to have with John. And he tells her, I can reheat something, although the chocolate souffle may be a little tough. Yeah, you cannot reheat a souffle. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, And then he goes through that whole thing about, you know, hey, whatever's bothering you, if you need time, take it. But you're not alone in this. But I think the most critical thing that comes out of this scene is when Ethan shows her the picture that he drew of the family in space so they'd be safe from extinction. And I'm thinking like two things, Skynet uh-huh. <laughs> and of course, Battlestar Galactica. I mean, that's how the human race avoided extinction. They were in space. Now they didn't do it necessarily deliberately. It was by yeah. chance, but that whole idea of being safe in space. And again, now maybe I'm making too many illusions that the writers had no intention of making, but I don't care. Yeah. And my question is, if Ethan went into the evolution display to show that he was the next step in evolution, then are, is he keeping them safe from androids or is he keeping them safe from aliens? Because of course, Ethan supposedly knows nothing about the alien pregnancy, assuming that it even is anything to do with extraterrestrials. Well, so it has a double meaning in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the whole idea of mankind's evolutionary steps. I mean, it's something that Arthur C. Clarke explored in Childhood's End. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Definitely. (laughs) So, I mean, are we going to come face to face with the overlords, if you will? So, you know, we'll see. And in a protective way, too. It could be, if he's saying protect them from extinction, you know how Skynet obviously wanted to eradicate humans, but you could also picture a supposedly benevolent robot nation protecting the humans, quote unquote, and by keeping them in concentration camps and things like that. So, Right. Or, or, you know, maybe it'll be something where they're protecting the human race in a benevolent way, just physically protecting them. No, 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 don't go there. That's dangerous. Or becoming a fascist robot state. <laughs> you know, but even with the Clark novel, the overlords come in to basically supervise mankind's next evolutionary step and it's not a negative. They're not there to take over. They're there to oversee. Yeah, they're doing it whether they like it or not is what I'm well, saying. Well, that's, so. that's true. <laughs> so, all right. Now, the other big storyline revolves around the Humanics Project. And uh, wow, John sees his lab for the first time at the same point that we see it. And impressive doesn't quite cut yeah, it. Yeah, he had a Geppetto's workshop in episode one. <laughs> yeah. And now he's got this great modern equipped lab. Yeah, and Julie 
And then Femi Dodd, who happens to be right behind her when she expresses the concern, what did you do to get this? Yeah. And, and it was rather quick too. Yeah. They just set this lab up in no time. Yeah. And we don't really see anything he agreed to, right? Right. It's just something that he said, I can fund it as a private citizen and then bam, it was there. So I could see how uh, Dodd would be suspicious, but it's interesting that Julie is too. Right. Now, you know, it's also good. It provides that opportunity for John to once again kind of flesh out what his idea behind the Humanics Project really is. And in his mind, it just is so seemingly simple that the artificial intelligent brain is no different than the brain of a child. You know, we're, we, we've written the program so that it can learn based on stimuli that we provide it, based on things that we teach it to do. How is that any different than the way your daughter? Yeah, except, yeah. as Dodd points out, you know, her daughter didn't spend three years in a box, which is an interesting detail as well, that apparently they keep their uh, Android brains in a box, quote unquote, for a number of years before they are given bodies. So obviously, I think John can't just explain it all the way that it's exactly the same as a human experience in that sense. Right. Now, were you a little surprised at his kind of condescending attitude uh, towards Dodd? Just, you know, give it up. I won. Yeah. The war is over. (laughs) Yeah. But I do think Dodd has a good point. She mentioned the soul last week, which depends on your belief system, of course. But this week, she says, if your machines become so human that we establish genuine connection with them, what does that do to the one we have with each other? And that speaks to the relationship we have with technology now for real, not just in the show. Yeah. And I think I would agree with him is that, well, I don't see that it really would matter. You know, really? <laughs> a, a, a connection's a connection. Because what John wants to get people to buy into is that a human connecting with a machine that is essentially sentient is no different than a human connecting with another human. And Except it, I think Dot is inferring or implying that they're going to seek machine connections instead of human connections because her daughter prefers their home service bot to her mother. Yep. Um, <laughs> and hey... We were in a restaurant the other day, two young women in their early 20s sat down facing each other. I looked over within five minutes, they both head down with their iPhones out. And I I didn't see either of them look up the whole time. Yep. Um, The other thing, you know, during that whole little walking tour, it's Julie's just kind of following, watching. (laughs) And and again, like I was explaining to my wife, who's, you know, relatively new to the genre field and she's just really into extant right now is that everything means something yeah (laughs) you know so that her observing everything with that look on her face i I don't know what it means but it it means something yeah well she is very expressive this grace gummer uh actress she's uh definitely not hiding her emotions we get to see every little reaction that she has whether it's towards molly or towards what john is saying and so on Right. Um, you know, so we get to see what the process has apparently been that periodically they build Ethan a new, bigger body, which we also assume has included technological improvements, but that they basically are putting his consciousness into a bigger body. 
And I like the guy says here, you know, I'll, I'll let you pick your own nose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Charlie. We'll have to keep an eye on him played by Tyler Hilton. I think he's going to be a fun character to get to know. So <laughs> one of the lab rats. Right. And are we supposed to think that Julie is perhaps more than just his lab assistant? And Oh, yeah. And I, I'm going to say no. I, I don't think she is. I think now. Maybe it's just on her side of things. Well, she, she has a sort of a, a, an infatuation with him, maybe. And, and and yeah, and I see I can definitely see that because, you know, when she's around, he doesn't seem too concerned, you know, no. when the three of them are around. And, and uh, you know, has she usurped some of Molly's uh, motherly duties? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you were gone for 13 months. How somebody had to. Yeah. And, and now she's missing playing that role. Maybe she has just kind of a fantasy, a hero worship of John. Right. Now, one of the things about John, he's been completely out in the open, especially about Femi Dodd, and, and points out to Yasumoto that, you know, hey, she came to me and, and you know, expressing some concerns. I thought you should know. And, you know, he says, ah, she doesn't share my optimistic view of the future. Yeah. Even though she's downstairs in a silk nighty. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, and, and then that whole idea about, you know, well, what do you see Humanic's role in 10 to 20 years? And, and, and again, he says what he's been saying all along. So that was not anything unexpected. Except then it gives Yasumoto an opportunity to invite the family over for dinner, presumably to get, as he mentioned with the director last week, closer to Molly. Right. But he says... You can go ahead and bring Ethan over too. Maybe that's just a cover story <laughs> to make John realize that the dinner could be a professional one too, but I don't know. Yep. All right. Now we've talked a little bit about Harmon Krieger and Seraphim Station and Harmon in the present, you know, already in the, in the uh, discussion tonight. But one of the things that I don't quite understand, and it may not be important, when he first sees this vision, which we find out is his mother, why is she wet? I think that is important, uh, specifically from the standpoint of we have to ask the question, why do these aliens or this presence, whatever you want to call it, take the form of someone that just died and have them appear the exact same way that, that they were the morning that they died? So uh, presumably the wet has something to do with the nature that she died. Perhaps she drowned. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Why she was in a house dress or, or nightgown. I don't know how that ties into it. But yeah, I do think it's significant. Okay. Well, he picks her up, Molly, that is, at ISEA, takes her out to his little trailer out in the middle of nowhere. I half expected him to have uh, tinfoil hats for everybody, but, <laughs> uh, but he didn't. But, you know, he tells her what he told them and basically, he lays out what he experienced. And I mean, one of the things that, that concerns me is how really close to the edge he seems to be. I mean, granted, he's experienced this a lot longer than Molly has. But again, he's an intelligent human being. He's not crazy. At least we don't think he is. I would think he could, you know, perhaps present himself a little calmer to Molly, especially if he's trying to convince her that they're both in the same boat. Well, especially since he tends to indicate that all of the, his misfortune is because they didn't believe him and no one in his life, his loved ones didn't believe him either. 
But I get the sense that he may have brought a lot of this on himself because of his inability to get anyone to believe his story. But I think the people at the ISEA probably did believe his story. They just didn't want him blabbing it out to everyone. Sure, sure. And so they had to get him out of the way because of his big mouth. Right. Now, when he says they made me see her again. Yeah, that he thinks he thinks it's all caused by ISEA. Right. And that, that whole line that he gives to Molly, we thought we were conducting experiments. We were the experiment. Yeah, he, he thinks there might have been some kind of radiation testing, something to do with how bodies react in space. Maybe they dosed them with something, but all, all of it would have been part of an experiment. And I think what we're seeing here is a conspiracy theorist that happens to be just going down the completely wrong road and trying to take Molly with him. Yeah, could be. Well, finally we see Sam take Molly to get the ultrasound at the, I I guess, some vet that she has access to. And she shows her a 14-week-old human fetus, seems perfectly healthy. Here's the heartbeat. I kept waiting to see the six little rings, but we didn't see those. Is it possible, uh, my wife certainly raised this question, that she pretty much set everything up and that, that it was really just a fake sonogram? Oh, well, it was a little bit strange that she was looking around for it with the tool. And then when she turns the monitor around, that's like no sonogram I've ever seen. Okay. Well, I've never that's seen practically a sonogram. <laughs> well, sonogram is kind of like a staticky image that looks like a, a sonar, which essentially it is a sonar image. And yet the image that they showed on the screen was more like a photograph or, or an actual camera imaging. Uh, and she had mentioned that the equipment was old. Uh, so you, you don't get a high tech sonogram like you might expect in this future world of theirs but you would think that it would at least look like a conventional sonogram so i think that was probably just for the audience's benefit okay to make it look like a normal human being because sonograms can be notoriously hard to read Mm. all (laughs) right well obviously this episode raises more questions that's right Uh, among them are who are they and in what form are they already here yeah Why are they appearing as dead loved ones in the exact form they were the day they died? Now, I can certainly accept that part of it, but, you know, why they've chosen dead loved ones as opposed to living loved ones? Yeah, it's like if they're getting into their brain and using an image that would be soothing to them, why pick someone that died, you know, and in this exact same form that they died? Uh, another question that we would have is, what is wrong with Yasumoto? Why does he only have uh, 102 days to live? And are his goals self-serving because of problems with his longevity? Or does he hope to gain more life? Like, does, does he actually want to use whatever knowledge or scientific advancement that he could garner from an alien life form to prolong his life? Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, we mentioned Katie Sparks and, you know, she's mentioned in terms of sacrifice she made and hopefully we'll learn something about that. As I said, I tend to think it was something that she was given as a sacrifice to someone for something, but we'll see hopefully at some point what that's all about. That's right. And we want to know if Sam is involved in the conspiracy or is she just the friend? Because I'll tell you, Dave, I think the only problem I've had with the show so far, uh, episodes one and two, 
are the conversations between Sam and Molly. They seem very stilted and unrealistic sometimes, but that could be chalked up to the fact that Sam is being fake. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, And then finally, should she, yes, (laughs) when is she going to tell John? You know, when is she going to confide in her husband? And, you know, it's almost as if she's confided more in Ethan. Yeah, and how about that, too? Because he saw the circles, right? Right. She did not. Right. So when she's keeping a secret about, you know, oh, I just fell down or whatever, and why would Daddy be worried about seeing you fall down? I think all of his questions aren't revealing how much he knows. So he could be drawing his own conclusions. You know what I thought was one of the most curious Ethan parts that we didn't mention was right when he saw Molly fall down, Julie and John back in the lab were watching a virtual display of him and they saw his processes spike. Oh, right. Wasn't that weird? It's like Julie noticed it. John just said, Oh, it's just because he's excited about this party that he's going to. But Maybe it was something else. Was it an actual emotional reaction to seeing his mother on the ground? Or did it have something to do with knowledge that he has or or the alien presence that was there? Because I don't think they would have put that in. Like you said, every detail means something, right? Right. Now, my wife did bring <laughs> up the fact that if they're able to monitor remotely all his biometrics, you know, why don't they have audio capabilities as well? Oh, yeah. Good point. So, but Well, that's the thing about the, the tether as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's like is it just supposed to be first of all that would be an extremely uncomfortable place to wear a a flat metal disc in the roof of your mouth but yeah so what was that tether used for right and not to mention back to episode one with the erased footage you would think all of that camera footage would be sent back to mission control as well wouldn't they oh yeah but i don't know who knows All right, so let's get to some predictions. We already actually have some things in the road from last week that have started to come. I think my prediction about Julie having some kind of affair with John, maybe not quite to the degree that I mentioned it, but yeah, I think uh, predictions are going to be a real fun part of our discussion. So what do you have this week? All right. Uh, you're going to let me go first. All right. That's good because I'd really be upset <laughs> if you ended up with the same one. All right. So we're watching it. Uh, my wife actually wanted to do a rewatch and suddenly I said, hold on, pause it. I need a pen. He has 102 days to live, right? Uh huh. <laughs> How many days in a week? Seven. 102 divided by seven, 14 weeks. Oh. So my prediction is that Molly being 14 weeks pregnant, and Yasumoto having roughly 14 weeks to live are connected. Okay. <laughs> I can see that. They play with numbers. I mean, you're going back to now lost where numbers were significant too. Yeah. <laughs> you're a numerologist. Well, <laughs> but here I, here I think it's more than just the, you know, like in lost. I mean, granted it was the lottery numbers and all that, but, but, but here I think, you know, then we get back to, well, she's pregnant you know he's trying to prolong his life i mean is there something that he's going you know that they're going to take his consciousness Mm. and put i I don't know well that was one of the first things i thought of back when the series before the series had even started uh based on some pictures that were posted on facebook by the actual uh show folks 
with regard to Yasumoto. So yeah, right. that could be. All right. So what do you got? Well, my prediction is probably pretty long-term, might even go into season two if there is one. <laughs> and that is that there's going to be another faction that we haven't met that's interested in what happened to Molly. And I'll tell you what prompted this prediction is <laughs> the whole idea of Sam being complicit somehow and not just Molly's friend. And perhaps this stems from my experience with Cameron Mannheim on Person of Interest, who is a government conspiracy type character on that show. But just picture Sam like calling someone up and saying, it's begun. And she's calling like somebody else that's been keeping an eye on it besides ISEA. And they are going to be the true villains, not Yasumoto and Sparks. Okay. I like it. <laughs> but we definitely want to hear uh, your predictions out there. And we're now moving into our segment for fan feedback, which we call Dark Matter Chatter. And we'll start off with an iTunes review. And I can't believe we got an iTunes review this early in our Dark Matter podcast. But thank you so much to Liquid Shadow 1973 for the iTunes review. He or she said, Extant may well prove to be the breakout hit of the summer, a deep, thoughtful show steeped in mystery and intrigue that explores a blend of many sci-fi classic themes in an engaging new story. As they have with all of their sci-fi podcasts, Mike and Dave have proven once again they know just how to weave through a complex show and dig into the tough questions. Articulate, thoughtful, and insightful analysis of the themes, story arcs, and characters are handled with the same inquisitive yearn that we all feel while watching our favorite sci-fi. These guys are fans, and they get why we love these shows. With Dark Matter and Extant Podcast, Mike and Dave deliver. If you're a sci-fi fan enjoying Extant, how can you not? and you love to dissect, speculate, and examine all the finer details of your shows, this is the podcast for you. Enough said. And Dave, what a great first review. Well well put and extremely complimentary. Yeah, and and really, I mean, we're really touched. Um, you know, obviously we, we joke a lot about things, but but those kinds of, of comments really, I mean, that's the kind of thing that keeps us going. Yep. All right, now, Eric sent in uh, a message and he says, my thoughts and observations on episode one so far. One, your comment on the lack of love between Molly and John. She's been on a solo mission for 13 months and she, and he's been engulfed in his work for that time. I think their relationship will rekindle a bit. However, I'm looking forward to how the pregnancy will affect them and the potential affair between her husband and his coworker. Uh -huh. yeah. All right. Two, what necessitated a solo mission? A team could have harvested mealworms on the Seraphim. Yeah, it's almost as though they wanted someone to be alone up there uh, for nefarious purposes, perhaps. Yeah. All right. Three, how did Harmon know what happened to Molly? Did Marcus try to impregnate him on his mission? No wonder he's in hiding. <laughs> well, and isn't that interesting? We didn't mention that, but his mother did the same gesture to his stomach. Right. And that's why I love that the two words he said were mother, no, because it almost is like she was saying, oh, you can't be a mother, mother, no. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's great. Yep. All right, now four, with John's 3D PowerPoint, why were folks taking so many notes? He really didn't say much. <laughs> I think a good fail-safe would be to program the robots with Asimov's three laws that may have persuaded the folks to support him a little more. Okay. Yes, and for those that don't know, it's, uh, I don't know all three laws, but definitely one of them is that 
you cannot uh, harm or do anything to bring harm to a human. Right. And then uh, I think one is through inaction, you can't bring. Right. And then uh, I forget the third one. Anyway. Next, we have an email from our good friend Gezis, who unfortunately this week is gone on a trip and unable to watch the second episode of Extant. But I just want to pause for a minute here because that last email that Dave read from Eric was about episode one, but you could see how it actually applied regardless. So don't worry about whether or not it's for the current episode that we're discussing. It's fine. We can still, we can talk about. So Geza says, I have a little something to add for the first episode. Remember when you were talking about promos spoiling too much? While I have a hard time thinking how they could promote this show without spoiling main plot threads, I had an opportunity to see how people who did not know anything about it react. I was showing the pilot episode to two of my friends, and they wowed when they saw John change Ethan's batteries. And so Gezus hopes to catch up soon. And yeah, I do wish we could have gone into watching it with fresh eyes. Uh, it's too late now. But I'll tell you, Dave, there's a, there's a promo out there now, which doesn't just have details about next week. It's got like details throughout the season. My eyes are still burning. It's like, I don't know stop why. Stop doing that. I know, I know. <laughs> so, all right. And then finally, Leo from Phoenix says, hello, Mike and Dave, Golden Spiral and Liberate is like a podcast dream team. And we, we yeah. couldn't agree more. Uh, what do you guys call a huge nitpick? Mega pick? Super spoiler? The pacing of the show is somewhat slow and that is only made worse by the previews. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I think the pacing is pretty good. Now, I definitely agree with you about the previews. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of tension, conflict, or mystery about the future was crushed by the spoilers. I mean, previews. So Molly <laughs> does tell her husband she's pregnant and she gives birth. Julie and John have totally had an affair and may do it again. I feel like the only real questions left who they are. If extant is the opposite of extinct, then perhaps Molly's baby is the first member of a new species. Here's my prediction. Yasumoto is actually one of them who was sent to Earth to find a way to preserve their species, oh, wow. either through biology or technology. Only certain humans have compatible DNA, and Yasumoto sent some of those humans into space alone. Answers mm. that other question. Having other people on board would spoil the mood. <laughs> Yasumoto is also interested in the Humanics Project to implant his memory or to create new robotic aliens. Please tell CBS to stop spoiling the mood. Yeah, seriously. But yeah, I, I like that. A lot of the theories that I had uh, were sprinkled throughout there as well, including I thought maybe Yasumoto would implant himself into an android. Uh, but there's all different kinds of directions it could be. He Did he say something about Molly actually giving birth? She's pregnant and she gives birth? Yes. I guess I guess he's predicting that will happen yes. in this season, maybe? Yeah. Well, if I'll tell you... I agree with you that the pacing is not slow. There are slow parts to each episode, but the pacing overall of the storyline for two episodes in is pretty amazing. The fact that she already confronted director sparks, for example. I mean, that's, that's pretty good pacing in my, in my, well, absolutely. So, and, and the whole, you know, conversation between sparks and Yasumoto with the whole, you know, we think they're already here and, and all of that. So that's a pretty big bombshell. Yep, and so we got 13 episodes. If it's truly an event series, and I don't think Under the Dome did this correctly, to be honest, an event series is supposed to be able to stand on its own without the hope of renewal, but then be renewed if it if it works, and then you just put the writers back to work. So I'm hoping what we'll get is a fairly complete storyline this season. Yeah, we'll see. 
you'll see. And uh, hopefully you'll come along the ride with us. In the meantime, that's it for this edition of the Dark Matter Extant Podcast. Keep up with show news and fan interaction, which is growing in leaps and bounds on Twitter. You can follow us at Dark Matter GSM, as well as other Golden Spiral Media podcasts by following GSM Podcasts. And Mike and I will be back next week with our discussion of episode three of Extant, entitled Wish You Were Here. And you can head over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to share your thoughts. Fair warning, though, we're recording on Thursday next week, so you'll have to act fast. But like I, like we said before, you can react to this week's episode. It doesn't have to be about the current week. Absolutely. And you can write a message, record a comment using your computer's microphone, or call 304-837-2278. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Dark Matter, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes as Liquid Shadow 1973 did. But in the meantime, we'll talk to you next weekend.